I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. When I was a little girl, I'd spend hours just dreaming that someday I would go to strange, faraway places. Miss Amelia Earhart. Why do you want to fly? I want to be free. That's actress Hilary Swank in the 2009 film Amelia, which chronicles the famous aviator's soar to international fame. But the obsession over the pilot's as-yet-unsolved disappearance back in 1937 has long overshadowed the fascinating life she led before her final flight. Few know about her strong local connections to Boston. Her time spent here was brief yet critical. This was the place that kicked off her worldwide stardom when she became the first female passenger to fly across the Atlantic in 1928. To mark her birthday this Saturday, celebrated as National Amelia Earhart Day, we're taking a look at who she was before becoming a famous pilot and how her life in Boston linked her to the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to become the pioneering female aviator. Joining me remotely are Susan Ware, author of Still Missing, Amelia Earhart and the Search for Modern Feminism, and the honorary women's suffrage centennial historian for the Schlesinger Library at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Welcome, Susan. Well, thanks for having me. Also with me, Keith O'Brien, author of Fly Girls, How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History, and a former staff writer for the Boston Globe. Thanks for joining us, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here, Callie. Well, it's a pleasure to have both of you. Now, I will confess, I am one of those people (laughs) that had no clue she had any Boston connection. And in fact, I'll just go further and say I, I had no idea where she came from. I think I thought I was somewhere in the Midwest. I don't know anything about her except that she flew and then got lost. So, Susan, let's start at the beginning. Who who was she before she became well-known as a female pilot? Well, you're absolutely correct that she grew up in the mid- born and grew up in the Midwest, but there was a restless, rootless quality to Amelia Earhart's life, and she lived all over the place in the years up until she became a well-known pilot. She spent some time in New York, a lot of time in California. And then from 1924 to 1928, four formative years, she and her mother and her sister lived here in Boston. And what drew them to Boston, do you know? I think at that point, her sister Muriel had moved here. And I think one of the fun local connections for me when I started to research my book now many decades ago, was that her sister Muriel was a school teacher in Medford. And there were still many people who remembered her. And they would say, when I'd say I was working on a book on Amelia Earhart, well, you know, her sister teaches in Medford. She was just part of people's Hmm. consciousness in a way that I think is no longer quite true the same way. So now that we know how she got to Boston and possibly why she was drawn to Boston, she and her mother, what did she do while she was here? Well, she's in her 20s. She doesn't really have any career goals. Uh, She tries a bunch of jobs. And one of the things that I always found so fascinating when I was researching her life is that she manages to connect with two venerable Boston institutions, 
One is the Women's Educational and Industrial Union, which was in existence until just a few years ago. And the other is the settlement house, Denison House, which was on Tyler Street on the edge of Chinatown. And she is looking for a job and she goes to the placement office at the Women's Educational Industrial Union, fills out a form and has an interview. And when you go to the Schlesinger Library where her papers are and you see the form, you see it lists her education and various things. And then then the person is, has written has a pilot's license, exclamation point, which certainly made her quite an unusual young woman in the 1920s. But it was through them that she got her job at Denison House, which is where she was working as a social worker when she got the call asking her to be a passenger on the flight in 1928. So I want to add that uh, what was the Women's Educational and Industrial Union is now the Crittenden Women's Union. So it still exists in just a different name and reorganization since her time here in Boston back in those days. Keith O'Brien, so everybody would be surprised at that point. We're back in the 1920s and she's a young woman and she has a license to fly. She's a pilot. So yeah, that would make somebody put an exclamation point on a card when interviewing her. How, in fact, did she have a license before she got to Boston? Well, as Susan said, you know, Amelia had led this this nomadic existence. And uh, in in the early 1920s, while living in Southern California, she had learned to fly. She had gone to what was the equivalent then of an air show. She had seen planes flying and and she had asked her father to buy her a, a quick flight. And it was it was on that flight that she she became hooked to flying and 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 took up flying lessons. And you know, I should say that flying lessons in the early, mid and late 1920s are nothing like you would have today. This was a widely unregulated industry. At the time, you know, you could, quote, earn a pilot's license with just a, a 90 minutes of flying. Uh, there was really no rhyme or reason to why someone got a, a pilot's license in one city or didn't in another. Basically, if you went out there, you put in a little bit of time, somebody would give you a pilot's license. And so, um, you know, she was one of just a handful of women in the country in the late 1920s who had even done this. And, and I think that's something that, you know, another thing about Amelia that people can't appreciate anymore, which is to have known Amelia Earhart or to have known any other woman in the late 1920s who knew how to fly would be today like knowing an astronaut. They simply didn't exist. You know, in, in 1928, there were 29 million women in America who were of age to vote in the presidential election, 29 million women. Out of that number, you know, fewer than a dozen, fewer than 12 had a pilot's license on file at the U.S. Department of Commerce, which was the regulating agency at the time. And so, you know, of course, it was notable in that uh, placement interview that she she had a pilot's license because very likely the person interviewing her at the placement office had never met a woman who could fly. Mm. So now she's in Boston. She's working at the Women's Educational Industrial Union and 
the Denison House doing her social work. She did a lot of things that social workers would do, help people get meals, counsel them, all of that kind of stuff. And in 1928, just all kinds of things come together, kind of a perfect storm, if you will. And she is essentially catapulted into the fame in the way that we know her to be now in her place in history. So Keith, how did that happen? And I should say that your book, Fly Girls, you put her in the context of some of the other few women, as you've just described, who were also uh, interested in aviation and were pilots at the time. Yeah, it's a fascinating stroke of luck that catapults Amelia to fame. Just to provide some of that context, as as most people will remember, you know, Charles Lindbergh becomes the first man to fly across the ocean nonstop in May of 1927. And when he does, you know, Charles Lindbergh becomes the most famous person in the world. And, you know, this flight has a side effect that many men in the aviation industry did not expect. And that is women now wanted to fly across the ocean and and they were willing to put their lives uh, on the line to do it just as Lindbergh was. And in the fall of 1927, five months after Lindbergh's flight, the first woman makes that flight. Her name is Ruth Elder. Uh, She is uh, the polar opposite of Amelia Earhart in almost every way. And uh, in in October 1927, Ruth Elder makes a flight with a male co-pilot flying across the ocean. And and this flight fails and, and they survive. So Ruth Elder, even though she fails, she sets up the opportunity for Amelia Earhart, right? In this spectacular failure, Ruth Elder becomes incredibly famous herself, even though she doesn't make it. And this gives lots of people ideas. And one of those persons is uh, George Putnam of the Putnam Publishing family. And Putnam connects with a very wealthy woman in America who's building a plane, uh, a seaplane in Boston. And the plan is to put this woman in the back of the plane with two very experienced male pilots. And they're going to fly her across the ocean in the spring of 1928. This is all under wraps. No one is speaking about it. It's the the best held secret on the East Coast. And uh, in the spring of 28, just a few weeks before the flight is scheduled to take off, uh, the, the woman's family urges her not to go. And the woman backs out because they don't want her to die in the ocean, as so many pilots did at that time. And so here's this very expensive plane, almost ready to go, sitting at a hangar in Boston, and George Putnam and the other connected East Coast people who have invested into this flight are looking for someone, a woman, to put on the plane. And the fact of the matter is, if you were looking for a pilot, a female pilot in Boston in the spring of 1928, there was really only one person to call, and she was that social worker at the settlement house on Tyler Street, Amelia Earhart. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with authors Susan Ware and Keith O'Brien about the life of Amelia Earhart and her connections to Boston. So now back to you, Susan Ware, because the focus of your book is really about feminism and Amelia Earhart. So looking at her through the lens of feminism and this particular flight actually really speaks to her. Maybe she always had it. I don't know. But it seems to me her expression of her her feminist understanding of who she was in that moment, because they essentially used her as a gimmick. And she knew that. So tell us about that. Well, she knew it. 
But she also thought, what a wonderful opportunity for me. I don't think she thought it would change her life quite the way it did, but it was very much in line with uh, her philosophy of life, which she had been living throughout the 20s, which was that women should be allowed to do whatever they wanted to do. There should be no artificial barriers. And if they had an opportunity to fly across the Atlantic, go for it and then use that success to encourage other women, not necessarily to fly the Atlantic, but to do whatever it was in their hearts that they wanted to do. And so I see her whole life and her accomplishments really through a feminist lens where she's using her individual achievement and success and celebrity as a way of encouraging other women in the United States and men too, to follow their dreams. And so when she got this phone call, it was just, you know, how could she possibly say no? It just fit her personality. And I think it fit into her larger goals. But she had a very famous quote at the end of that flight and assessing who she was on that flight. She recognized the opportunity, as you said. But she also said, what, Susan? That she was just a bag of potatoes. And I, th- I think it was hard for her to sit in the back as a passenger. And that's why I've always thought that her most compelling flight was the solo she did in May of 1932, five years exactly after Lindbergh's flight, where she is only the second person and the first woman to fly solo from the United States to Europe. And I think for her, that was sweet vindication. Of course, that never would have happened if she hadn't been a passenger on the 1928 flight. And that, in fact, was quite monumental. Here is Amelia Earhart speaking after setting a solo transcontinental speed record from Los Angeles to Newark in 1932. It took me about 19 hours and uh, a few minutes to uh, make the trip. I wish I could have done it faster. And what did you carry on the trip? You mean to eat? Yeah, to eat and drink. Well, I carried some water, of course, because my cockpit is very warm. And I carried a sandwich in case. I didn't eat it, though. I carried some hot chocolate and um, the old reliable tomato juice. What kind of a sandwich was it? (laughs) Chicken sandwich. That's one of the other things I learned uh, from uh, both of your research. She had a sense of humor. She was pretty funny. I mean, she she didn't take herself so seriously, Susan. No. Uh, and she was, she was a very appealing figure. If you see her, she's just flown for 19 hours when she's having to confront all these reporters with these silly questions about what kind of a sandwich she didn't eat. And she's just unflappable and calm. And I think that added to her her public appeal. Now, we should say, Susan, you had an association with the Schlesinger Library that uh, both of you uh, did much of your research about Amelia Earhart and her connections to Boston and your different focuses on her life before becoming the famous pilot uh, from the papers that were donated by her mother and sister to the Schlesinger. So it's important to know that there is history right here (laughs) <laughs> in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, not only did she live her life here, but we have evidence of that in the library itself. So how do you see her as a modern feminist, Susan? 
Well, I think one of the things that has been proven true over the years is there's a certain timeless timelessness to her celebrity and to her feminism. It worked in the 1930s, and it still works today. It's in many ways a somewhat incomplete brand of feminism. I mean, she basically says, just follow your dreams and and do what you want to do and don't let anybody stand in the way. And that doesn't work for everybody who doesn't have advantages or their skin color is different or all kinds of factors. And yet it is kind of the lowest common denominator of feminism and it has aged quite well. And also I think there is something about just the modernness of her presence, the way with her slacks and the carefully knotted scarf and her tousled hair she really looks like she could walk into a room today and she'd be perfectly at home. And I think that makes it easier for people to connect with her in a way that, let's say, an Eleanor Roosevelt or a suffragist like Carrie Chapman Catt or Susan B. Anthony, they would have seemed older, less accessible. But there's something very modern and appealing about Amelia Earhart, and it continues to to reach people. So, Keith, she would be 124 years old this year. (laughs) That's the first thing. Right. And just to remind people that her craft on July 2nd, 1937, it was a Lockheed aircraft. Uh, She was flying with navigator Frederick Noonan, was reported missing near Howland in the Pacific. They were trying to do a circumnavigational flight of the globe at that point, and she's never been found. I learned recently that a Robert Ballard led an expedition, I think in 2019, to a remote island in the South Pacific to look for the plane, and many others have tried over the years. He's still trying. But my point to you is, in your book, as I said, she's in a group of other women who are also pilots, and I wonder what you see, where she is in that group. Is she the leader in that group? Do you think that you know, who she was and what happened to her, even though obviously her last flight was not successful, is what has continued to draw people to the field, women particularly. I mean, what what's her legacy as you see it? Well, I think what's interesting about Amelia uh, is that, as Susan just said, she is this enduring figure, an enduring hero. Uh, and yet, most people know so very little about her. Most people don't know that she was a passenger on that flight. Most people don't know that women tried to fly across the ocean before her. And and indeed, before her signature moment, that solo flight across the Atlantic in May 1932, there was another woman who attempted to fly solo across the ocean before her. Uh, That woman's name was Ruth Nichols. Uh, she was also a pilot who had come to this following her dreams, and she makes her solo flight across the ocean one full year before Amelia would attempt it. Amelia knew Ruth Nichols. They were friends, and they were also rivals. Amelia and Ruth kept secrets from each other about their plans to fly across the ocean. Women, in addition to just Ruth, Nichols, and Amelia, knew that the, the first one who could fly solo across the ocean would have essentially the, the key to the room of immortality. They would be a legend. And so Ruth Nichols makes this flight in, in June 1931, and, and she fails. And she fails in the way that pilots often failed in the 1930s. Her plane crashed while refueling in, in Canada and was uh, unable to take off again. And, and that opens the door for, for Amelia, you know. And so 
for me, what I find interesting about Amelia is is really two things. One, you know, she could have after that flight in 1928, the flight where she was a passenger, she could have rested on those laurels. You know, she could have gone to Broadway, she could have gone to Hollywood, she could have been a starlet, she could have been whatever she wanted. But Amelia was actually criticized at that time. You know, people in the aviation industry knew that that flight was a gimmick and they quietly whispered behind her back for years that she wasn't a real pilot. And, and to Amelia's credit, you know, she would spend the rest of what would be a very short life making daring flights because that was what she wanted to do. But also it was really an answer to her critics, critics that she had at that time. Uh, but I think the other interesting thing about Amelia is she was a part of this cohort of women who were flying at the time. Amelia was one of the co-founders of a group called the 99s a group of female pilots that still exists today. The name, the 99s, comes from the number of women who joined initially, the, the, the original charter members. 99 women joined in late 1929. Uh, that was 99 out of just 117 licensed female pilots in America at the time. Uh, you know, Amelia was a, a leader of those women, but she was also a good friend to them. And I think one of the most appealing characteristics about Amelia is that she was really generous of spirit. Uh, she was making these bold flights. She wanted this history for herself. She wanted to be the first woman to fly solo across the ocean. And yet she was truly a good friend to these other women. They were truly the only women who could actually understand Amelia and what she was doing. And, and she was, you know, one of the only women who could understand them too. Wow. And if she hadn't making a full circle loop on this, if she hadn't been in Boston even that short period of time and she never came back to Boston after she gained a little bit more fame, the opportunity would never have presented herself. I mean, it was just all came together in Boston. Boston was the linkage point of her going into the next chapter of, of her life, which in fact made her the, the pioneer that she was. I would agree with that, Callie. Boston is the moment, this lightning bolt moment for her. If she does not come to live with her sister and, and her mother in Medford, she is not the only female pilot in Boston when George Putnam needs a woman to put on a plane. Uh, you know, If she's not there for that flight, we may never know the name Amelia Earhart. But I, I think the other interesting thing is, you know, if if Ruth Nichols doesn't fail in 1931, and if Amelia then doesn't risk her life, and I just want to be clear, that's what she was doing. When Amelia flew solo across the ocean in 1932, the chances of her crashing in the ocean and dying were far greater than her making it to the coast of Europe. You know, if she doesn't do that, we may not even really remember Amelia at all today. I would add also that, you know, when she accepted the invitation to be on this flight, she saw it almost as a vacation. She went to the head worker and said, basically, can I have a few days off? Uh, I will be back. And then she really couldn't come back because her celebrity is such that it made it impossible for her to be just an ordinary social worker. Of course, the other thing that this moment did was it connected her in 
profound ways with G.P. Putnam, who was her the publicist behind this and who became her husband in 1931 and was her promoter. And as generous and wonderful as Amelia was with other women pilots, most of them didn't have very good things to say about G.P. Putnam, who was really always out there pushing his wife, trying to get her her first and getting her opportunities. So it's a it's a complicated, fascinating story. But as you say, it all circles back to Boston in 1928. Well, I thank you both for shedding some light on our very interesting life, pre-pioneer. It's just so surprising. And, you know, it just reminds us we just don't always know who's right under our nose, uh, history-wise, that so we should pay attention to that. So I thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Callie. Susan Ware is the author of Still Missing, Amelia Earhart and the Search for Modern Feminism, and the Honorary Women's Suffrage Centennial Historian for the Schlesinger Library at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Keith O'Brien is the author of Fly Girls, How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History, and a former staff writer for the Boston Globe. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at wgbh.org news, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubelie and engineered by Dave Goodman. Iptisam Imaliki is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.